From Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News, this is an American Radio Works special report. Oh, freedom over me. I'm Deborah Amos. In the summer of 1964, about a thousand young Americans, black and white, came together in Mississippi for a peaceful assault on racism. They had to be prepared to go to jail, they had to be prepared to be beaten, and they had to be prepared to be killed. It came to be known as Freedom Summer, one of the most remarkable chapters in the Southern Civil Rights Movement. Those who took part in Freedom Summer confronted Southern segregation and their own prejudices. I think it was a moment in which we all had to stop and realize the gap between us. If we were to reach across it, it was going to take a lot of reaching. Coming up in this hour, an American Radio Works report, Oh, Freedom Over Me. First, the news. I'm Deborah Amos, and this is Oh, Freedom Over Me, a special report from American Radio Works and NPR News. The summer of 1964 is remembered for the murders in Mississippi of three young civil rights workers, James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman. But there's another story behind that event, the story of Freedom Summer, a movement led by young civil rights workers and dependent on the bravery of ordinary black Mississippians. Mississippi native Lawrence Guiot was on the staff of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, in the early 1960s. There's nothing to compare with it, because you brought in different people with different talents for different reasons, and there was no middle ground. You were either for change or you opposed change. American Radio Works correspondent John Bewin interviewed Freedom Summer veterans. In the next hour, through their voices and stories, we revisit the dramatic events of the Mississippi summer and explore how the summer helped shape racial politics in America for years to come. In our first segment, John Bewin looks at the beginnings of Freedom Summer and the hard southern soil in which it grew. This story really ought to start in slavery. But then again, in, say, the 1950s, a few generations after the end of slavery, life for black Mississippians looked and felt much like it had during those centuries in bondage. Uh, when I was about 15 or uh, something, we was at the church at the uh, church association in the country. That was kind of a big day, you know. MacArthur Cotton grew up in east-central Mississippi. He still lives in the state. He remembers the time in the 1950s when a black sharecropper in Winston County took the day off to go to a church gathering without his white boss's permission. He didn't go to plow that day, but, you know, his boss man wanted him to plow. When fella came up there and said, I thought I told you to go to the field. And he got ready to walk away and he just kind of grabbed him and shot him six times, you know, right there. You know, he failed. And nobody, nobody really said nothing. Nobody really did anything. Things like that just happen all. It, it, it happened all the time. But something got a hold of me. The system of segregation yes, known as Jim Crow had been entrenched throughout the South since the 1800s. It demanded conformity from everybody, black and white. Bob Zellner is white. He grew up in Southern Alabama in the 1940s and 50s. As a teenager, Zellner worked at a country store. He remembers being corrected by his boss. He explained that I had said yes, sir, to a black man, and yes, ma'am, to a black woman. 
And he explained to me that if it was just he and I and uh, a black customer, it was all right. But if there were white people around, that I couldn't do that. And I explained to him that I had been raised uh, to have manners. And that meant that to older people, you, you said yes sir, no sir, and yes ma'am, no ma'am. And he said, well, that's all right if it's just us, but other people will get very upset if you do that. In 1961, as a college senior in Montgomery, Alabama, Zellner and several other students were assigned to write a paper on the race problem for a sociology class. As part of their research, against their teacher's wishes, they arranged interviews with civil rights leaders Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy. And as a result of those meetings, five of us were asked to leave school. The Klan burnt crosses around our dormitory. We were called into the office of the Attorney General of the state of Alabama, who said, you're under the communist influence. And to boil it down, they gave you the choice of completely capitulating to their know-nothing racism or becoming a rebel. After he'd finished school, Zellner became the first white field secretary for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That group had been formed as a young people's wing of Martin Luther King's organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. SNCC would be the first to mount a public campaign against Jim Crow in Mississippi, but not until 1961. Before then, even while blacks were launching bus boycotts and lunch counter sit-ins in other southern states, the Mississippi movement stayed underground. You know, in spite of growing up in Alabama, uh, where you know it's not too much different, but Mississippi, it was just, this was the, the last place. John Lewis now represents Georgia in the U.S. Congress. In 1961, he was a 21-year-old freedom rider. The Freedom Riders rode buses into the South to challenge whites-only lunch counters and restrooms. Lewis was punched and kicked by South Carolina segregationists. Rioting whites beat him bloody in Montgomery, Alabama. But what scared him was Mississippi. When you cross that line, that state line, it just a sense of something like the climate change. The air got warmer and your heart started beating faster. Too many bodies have been found black bodies in the poor river, or the Tallahatchie River, in the state of Mississippi. In the early 1960s, most black Mississippians were locked in poverty on cotton plantations. Public education was separate and so unequal that most blacks were illiterate. Democracy Mississippi style was a travesty. Back in 1890, whites had designed a system allowing county registrars to decide who could vote based on what was called a literacy test. In practice, the county officials only rejected blacks. In the three years before the Freedom Summer volunteers made headlines, Mississippians like Unita Blackwell quietly risked their lives testing Jim Crow. I guess I was born in it, you know, I was born in the movement. The day I was born, I was born black. All my life, I knew something was wrong, you know, with, with the way that uh, people perceived me as a black person, because I was born in Mississippi Delta. In the 1970s, Unita Blackwell would become mayor of her hometown, Myersville, Mississippi. 
But that was unthinkable in the early 1960s. Then she and her husband lived in a two-room shotgun house and worked on a plantation. Blackwell was one of the first black Mississippians to respond when SNCC sent its first young staff members into the state. One day we were sitting on the porch and here come two more guys and they was walking fast. Well, we know that at that time you did not walk fast in the South. And so they just said, hello. And well, didn't nobody speak that way. You know, we say, how y'all feeling, you know. And we said, that's them. I said, Corrine, that's them. A few days later, a SNCC staff member came to Blackwell's church to speak. He was looking for people brave enough to walk into their county courthouse and try to register for the vote. And I stood up. My husband caught me by the dress tail and pulled me back down because he was supposed to stand up first, you know, because he's a man. So he stood, and I stood up, and I've been standing up ever since. When Blackwell and several others went to see the Issaquina County Registrar, a white mob met them at the courthouse. She was rejected as a voter without being physically attacked. But other blacks who tried to register were beaten, jailed, even murdered. Former SNCC staff member Michael Sayer tells what happened to a black man named Herbert Lee in the fall of 1961. He was one of the first people involved in the voter registration work that SNCC had become involved in. He was a dairy farmer and had a farm across the road from the state legislator from that area, E.H. Hurst. In 1961, you know you're talking about a white state legislator. Now, these two individuals, E.H. Hurst and Herbert Lee, had grown up across the road from each other. They were friends. They broke bread together. Their children played together. Sayer says the friendship between the two men illustrates that segregation was not about hatred. It was a strictly enforced division of power. When Herbert Lee got involved in the voter registration, he stepped across this cultural divide. And E.H. Hurst invited Herbert Lee to see him down at the cotton gym, and he assassinated Herbert Lee. E.H. Hurst claimed he'd shot Lee in self-defense. An all-white jury acquitted him. In June of 1963, avowed racist Byron De La Beckwith fired a single bullet through the back of Medgar Evers, Mississippi leader of the NAACP. Roy Wilkins was the civil rights group's national leader. We view this as a cold, brutal, deliberate killing in a savage, uncivilized state. The most savage, the most uncivilized state in the entire 50 states. But they lay in his grave. And really it's the brutalizing of a people. And these deaths are sort of the ultimate forms of that. Bob Moses was the cerebral and morally forceful leader of SNCC's Mississippi campaign in the early 1960s. He'd gotten his master's degree in philosophy from Harvard and taught high school mathematics for a couple of years before joining SNCC. Moses himself survived a drive-by murder attempt a few months before Beckwith killed Evers. When Mega was assassinated, um, it focused a lot of national attention on Mississippi. And various individuals and groups were considering doing 
something. The president, his limp body carried in the arms of his wife, Jacqueline. Later that fall, the assassination of President Kennedy shook the nation to its core. The Mississippi movement was traumatized, but also hopeful that the national turmoil might create an opening, a chance to turn a corner. This little light of mine, I will let it shine. In the fall of 1963, Moses proposed a massive project for the following summer, a project aimed at breaking the back of Mississippi's closed political system. Civil rights groups would join forces with northern charitable foundations, student activists, and religious groups. The centerpiece of the proposal, to invite a thousand mostly white volunteers from northern universities. They would help register black Mississippians for the vote and sign them up in a new party, the Mississippi Freedom Democrats. But the plan caused sharp debate within SNCC. Some on the mostly black SNCC staff in Mississippi opposed a large infusion of white northerners. They wanted black Mississippians to build their own movement and win their own freedom. Others argued bringing in whites was the only way to force the nation to confront the reality of Mississippi. Either way, I mean, it was damned if you do, damned if you don't, that's all. And, but that was Mississippi. Bob Moses recalls the argument raged until January of 1964, when word came of yet another killing. A lot of people do night hunting and stuff up there, so it's not unusual to hear gunshots in January at night. And my grandfather, he said he heard them too. He said it sounded like about three of them. Henry Allen was 18 years old when his father, Lewis, was shot dead at their front gate outside of Liberty, Mississippi. Lewis Allen was a logger and farmer. He had been an eyewitness two years earlier when the white state legislator, E.H. Hurst, killed Herbert Lee for trying to register black voters. Even though Allen didn't testify against the white killer, local police and other whites threatened and harassed him. The FBI declined to protect Allen. On that January night, his son Henry came home from a date and found Lewis in the front yard. Oh, he was just mutilated. I meant to shoot a person in the head, you know, with a shotgun at close range. I meant just, just chaos, man. Just chaos, you know. Yeah, I never wanted my mom and my little sister to, even, to ever see him. My mama wanted to go down to that road, but she'd have stroked out. She'd have probably died right there, you know. Just too much to look at. Somebody that close to you, because, you know, we was close people, you know. No one was ever charged with the murder. At the news of Allen's death, Bob Moses ended the debate about the proposed Mississippi Summer Project. Yeah, it came down, it was my decision to move it. Um, and what moved me was Lewis's murder. That was it. Get on board, children, children, get on board. A civil rights coalition led by SNCC and the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, announced plans for what would come to be known as Freedom Summer, a peaceful campaign to bring democracy to Mississippi. I'm Deborah Amos. Coming up, the response by white supremacists to the voter registration drive. You came to uh, see white faces as something to fear. You're listening to Oh Freedom Over Me, a look back at the Mississippi summer of 1964. From American Radio Works and NPR News. I'm Deborah Amos, and this is Oh Freedom Over Me, a report from American Radio Works on the Mississippi summer of 1964. Freedom Summer was designed to shine a floodlight on the closed racist society that Mississippi was at the time. But for those involved, 
campaign revealed deep fault lines that ran all the way through American society, including the civil rights movement itself. American Radio Works correspondent John Bewin picks up the story. I'm going down the Mississippi. Oh, I'm going down a southern road. And if you never see me again, remember that I had to go. In June of 1964, about 500 students from colleges in the North met in Oxford, Ohio, for week-long training sessions sponsored by the National Council of Churches. We had to tell these young people exactly what they were getting ready to get involved in. Hollis Watkins. They had to be prepared to go to jail, they had to be prepared to be beaten, and they had to be prepared to be killed. And if they were not prepared for either one or all three, of those, then they probably should reconsider coming to Mississippi. SNCC and Corps staff lectured the volunteers on voter registration techniques and nonviolent philosophy. Bob Zellner, the white SNCC staff member from Alabama, says the Northerners were also taught rules for survival in the segregated South. No interracial groups traveling day or night uh, unless absolutely necessary. And if that, if that happened, only one Whoever was in the minority would be hidden, covered up with blankets, laying on the floorboards, whatever. From dirty words and muddy cells, your clothes are smeared and stained. The mostly black Mississippi staff members of the civil rights groups were shell-shocked and bitter after several years of trying to register black voters. Some had been jailed and beaten repeatedly. Most of the white volunteers were used to privilege, or at least safety. The chasm between the two groups showed up early at the training sessions in Ohio. White volunteer Robbie Osman, then a 19-year-old from New York City, recalls SNCC staff showed film of a fat, drawling Mississippi registrar who turned away would-be black voters. Osman says northern volunteers found the official funny. Someone had tried to register and he was sending them back and being vaguely threatening, and it seemed to us, the young white, college students that this guy was as ridiculous, as pathetic, as caricature uh, racist as we ever expected to see. And we laughed. And to our complete surprise, because we, I think, I can speak for myself at least, I really didn't expect it, this horrified the SNCC veterans. Folks stood up and said, how can we go to Mississippi with you? I mean, how can we put our lives on the line with you guys, you really don't have a clue as to what's going on, do you? You know, you really don't know what this guy represents in the context in which he really lives. And um, I think it was a moment in which we all had to stop and realize the gap between us. If we were to reach across it, it was going to take a lot of reaching. But if the volunteers had any doubt about the gravity of their mission, those doubts could not last. On June 21st, the day after the first Freedom Summer volunteers arrived in Mississippi, three young civil rights workers disappeared. They'd been pulled over by a sheriff's deputy near the small town of Philadelphia. One of the missing was James Cheney, a 21-year-old black Mississippian and a staff member with the Congress of Racial Equality. With him were two young white men from New York, fellow Corps staff member Michael Schwerner and summer volunteer Andrew Goodman. The disappearance made national headlines and drew a high-profile response from the federal government. Mississippi Governor Paul Johnson spoke at a news conference. 
President Johnson has ordered 200 Marines and eight helicopters to join in the search for three civil rights workers missing in Mississippi. Their presence here is indeed a surprise to me. The bodies of the three young men were found six weeks later, buried under an earthen dam. Earlier murders of Herbert Lee, Lewis Allen, and other blacks had gone virtually unnoticed outside Mississippi. The country's strikingly different response to the loss of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner drove home a central point of Freedom Summer for volunteer Robbie Osman. The very reason that we were there as white college students was that unless the country's attention was focused by by the presence of those people that this country was accustomed to caring about, namely white college students, um, nothing would happen. And if it was only people who this country uh, was not accustomed to caring about, namely black Mississippians, then nothing would happen. And I think that what embarrasses me is the extent to which I was capable of forgetting or underestimating that. It's not that I didn't know it. It's that I didn't feel it. You would look out there and the highway patrol would be sitting there in the white and police would be right here and they would always be because this was the corner, you know, where I live. During the summer of 1964, Unita Blackwell's home became a focal point for civil rights activity. She was now SNCC's summer project director for Issaquina County. She'd lost her other jobs, picking cotton and cleaning the homes of whites, because she tried to become a registered voter. It was a freeze-out, you know, so you don't have any money or get any means of uh, living. And so SNCC was paying, we, I think it was $11 every two weeks we could get her to. So that was my major job as an organizer. Freedom Summer volunteers, middle-class white kids from the North, slept on the floor of Blackwell's two-room house and they took direction from her. That was an interesting situation, you know. To sit in a room and, and talk to white people, not they talking down to me, or I'm talking up, to, looking up to them. We trying to figure out some strategies for us to all stay alive and work out, you know, how we're gonna get things done, registered, and vote and all that. All across Mississippi, young civil rights workers went looking for potential black voters and members for the new Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, an alternative to the regular Democratic Party, which excluded blacks. Among the workers were volunteer Joe Morse of Minnesota and Mississippian Rosie Head. Uh, so it meant going, going door to door. Uh, usually we were in pairs. Uh, well, we were always in pairs. Uh, usually a black person and a white person. We would go from house to house and talk to people and try to encourage them, you know, to come out to meetings and explain to them how they could get registered to vote and what, you know, good it would do them if they could get registered. There'd be a home on the side of the road and you'd have to park your car and you knew that if anybody came by while you were parked there, if it was anybody who was related to the Klan or the White Citizens Council or some racist, they'd know your car and they'd know your license plate. So you were immediately putting the people you were talking to at risk. And uh, a lot of times we would get put out of the people's house. They wouldn't let us pass the gate or they'll just say, uh, 
they didn't want to talk to us, they didn't want to be involved in the mess, and they would just be afraid to talk to us. Out of half a million black Mississippians of voting age, only 1,200 were approved as voters during Freedom Summer. But the voter registration drive had another purpose, to show the nation how some whites behaved when black Mississippians tried to assert their rights as citizens. David Billings would later teach classes in racial tolerance in Louisiana. But as a white teenager in Macomb, Mississippi in the early 1960s, he joined mobs that attacked civil rights workers. We kind of envisioned ourselves as kind of the the last uh, bulwark of, of resistance. Felt that folk in Alabama and, and Georgia, for example, had, had caved in in some ways, that, but that in Mississippi we we weren't going to do it, was trained to resist what, uh, what was put forward as a, a threat to a way of life that was sacred and that one protected at, at risk of their own life and even if it meant taking of other lives. For several years before Freedom Summer, civil rights workers had asked the federal government for protection from the Ku Klux Klan with no success. Former SNCC staffer Michael Sayer points out the FBI, under Director J. Edgar Hoover, was well aware of the attacks on black Mississippians. But the FBI policy wasn't to intervene and prevent the Klan from doing what it was doing. It was simply to report back to the FBI so the FBI could be on top of the knowledge game. But we're talking about J. Edgar Hoover here, who was very hostile to the idea of independent black political activity. Letters and FBI documents show that Hoover, in fact, viewed civil rights workers as the troublemakers in the South, not segregationists. He directed his agents to do the bare minimum in investigating Klan violence and voting rights violations. During Freedom Summer, under pressure from President Johnson, the FBI opened an office in Jackson. But that didn't stop the terrorism. During the summer of 64, white supremacists burned down 67 black churches and homes, they beat up 80 civil rights workers, and they fired dozens of shots into the cars and offices of Freedom Summer workers. You came to uh, see white faces as something to fear. White volunteer Dean Zimmerman of North Dakota. And of course then you come to realize that this is the reality of blacks every day of their lives. As you encounter a white face, you immediately, your body takes on a whole different posture, your mind becomes very alert. You are constantly on the lookout for what you may have to do in a big hurry just to survive. SNCC staff member Dory Ladner worked in the Summer Project office in Natchez. She spent sleepless nights taking threatening phone calls from segregationists. She says she was so frightened, she vomited every night after supper. I suffer from um, trying to dodge white men and pick up trucks, uh, worry about whether or not someone was going to come and bomb the house where we were sleeping, whether or not we were going to get killed. And I don't like to ride in front seats of cars right now because I couldn't drive during that time, and I was always afraid of a drive-by shooting. For some, the fears came horribly true. Matt Suarez of CORE recalls someone made the mistake of bringing a white woman to an organizing meeting in Canton, Mississippi. We had certain areas where we knew that if a black guy and a white woman were seen together, it was almost certain death. And Canton was one of those places. 
Word got out and a mob formed. Corps staff members decided to send out three black men in one car to draw the mob away, then sneak the white woman out in another car. Suarez rode in the decoy vehicle. His friend, George Raymond, drove. And about 50 pickup trucks got behind us with white boys hanging off the running bulls with chains and pipes and baseball bats and they screaming, killing niggas, you know, and all of this crap. And a highway patrolman and a sheriff's deputy, they got in both lanes following us and put their bright lights on behind us. And I told George, I said, hit him, George. He said, no, we can't. I said, George, this is no time to be stopping out here in the middle of nowhere. Hit him. George pulled the car on the goddamn side. They took George out. They had him behind the car right in the headlights so that all we could see was silhouettes. They had it, and they just beat George into the ground. I mean, they, they literally just pulverized him out there on the highway. And... Um, the highway patrolman came over to us and and he says, you got 24 hours to get your black asses out of Mississippi. He said, if we ever catch you in here again, we're going to kill you. And that ended that. They, they turned him around and took off and we went and picked George up off the highway, put him in the car, drove into Jackson. But you can't imagine the fear that's gripping you at the time that that's happening, that you know they there, they want to kill you. They can do it. There's nothing to stop them, you know. Um, And that stuff stays with you a long time, a long time. George Raymond survived that beating and several others he received in Mississippi jails. But his friends say he changed from a light-hearted young man to a tense, bitter one. He died of a heart attack at the age of 30. Most of us have never heard of George Raymond. People involved in the civil rights movement stressed this again and again, that the movement required bravery and sacrifice, not just from the heroes whose names we know, but from thousands of ordinary people. They gathered at night, usually in churches, to form strategy and to lift one another's courage. One way they did that was through freedom songs. Hollis Watkins often led the singing at Mississippi civil rights meetings. This is a recording from a rally in Jackson in 1963. More than 30 years later, Watkins explains that most of the freedom songs were adapted from gospel, blues, and folk as tools for organizing and mobilizing people. In the mass meetings, you wanted to raise the interest, you wanted to raise the spirit, And in doing that, it coincided with what would be going on in your daily activities. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. I'm gonna keep on a-walking, keep on a-talking, fighting for my equal rights. Or you would say, marching down the freedom lane. And as you sang the different songs, getting the spirit and the momentum going, you could eventually get to the song where you, you, you sang the question that kind of locked people in, you know, and 
Will you register and vote? Certain the law. Will you register and vote? Certain the law. Will you register and vote? Certain the law. Certain is certain is certain the law. Will you march downtown? The late Fannie Lou Hamer, she was good about that. You know, after we get people to sing in certain songs, and if they made certain commitments in songs, then she would hold them to that after the meeting and everything was. And we can protest against these things by registering to vote. I want to know right now how many people will go down Monday morning. If you're afraid, me and my daughter go with you. Fannie Lou Hamer was a potent spiritual force in the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. In 1962, she and her family were evicted from a cotton plantation for trying to register for the vote. The following year, she was severely beaten in a Winona, Mississippi jail after several people she was with used the whites-only restroom and lunch counter at a bus station. I was in jail with, um, with Mrs. Hamer and, and Winona. Uvester Simpson. I, was, I remember I really was not afraid. I was just I was more angry than anything because I shared a cell with Miss Hamer. And I remember we, I sat up all night with her applying um, cold towels and things to her face and her hands trying to get her fever down and to make you know to help some of the pain go away and the only thing that got us through that was that you know we were we were all in these cells like you know uh, right along a wall and we we sang we sang all i mean songs got us through so many things and without that music i don't i think we probably would have many of us would have just lost our minds or lost our way completely I'm Deborah Amos. Fannie Lou Hamer would play a prominent role in the final chapter of Freedom Summer. Coming up, the Democratic Party's last segregated delegation and the legacy of Freedom Summer. But it achieved more than anything else. I think it exposed the system from top to bottom. Mississippi transformed us more than we transformed Mississippi, much more profoundly. You're listening to Oh Freedom Over Me from American Radio Works and NPR News. For more on Freedom Summer, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You'll find a slideshow of images that photographer Steve Shapiro shot in 1964 for Life magazine. You'll also find transcripts of interviews with key figures like Bob Moses, Unita Blackwell, and Bob Zellner. That, along with the text and audio of this radio report at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Major funding for American Radio Works is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. American Radio Works is the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. I'm Deborah Amos, and this is an American Radio Works special report, Oh Freedom Over Me, a look at Freedom Summer, Mississippi, 1964. In June and July of that year, the voter registration drive and the violent response to it put Mississippi on the nation's front pages and TV screens. At the end of the summer, the Mississippi movement took its case to New Jersey, where it issued a dramatic challenge to the nation's dominant political party. In our final segment, the climax of Freedom Summer and its complicated meaning in American history, here's correspondent John Bewin. 
The civil rights workers who spent the summer of 64 going door to door trying to sign up black voters didn't have much success. Many black Mississippians were too frightened to take that walk to the county courthouse. County officials rejected most who did. But it was far less risky to sign up for the new Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. So by August, the new party had 60,000 black members and some white ones. Party chairman Lawrence Guyot organized the effort to build a legal convention delegation based on the rules of the National Democratic Party. We paralleled the state organization of Mississippi where we could, where, we, where it was possible to do so and remain alive. We conducted precinct meetings, we conducted convention meetings, we conducted county meetings and congressional district meetings. We elected a delegation. We then put that delegation on the way to Atlantic City. Giat stresses the Freedom Democrats followed one key rule of democracy that the regular all-white Mississippi Democratic Party systematically violated. The Freedom Democratic Party was open to everyone. Mr. Chairman. At its national convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey, the Democratic Party wanted unity, not controversy, as it prepared to nominate President Lyndon Johnson. The delegates elected by the Mississippi Freedom Democrats, 64 blacks and four whites, arrived in buses and asked to be seated in place of the all-white delegates from the regular state party. Testifying before the Credentials Committee, the Freedom Democrats argued theirs was the only legitimate delegation from Mississippi. My name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Ruseville, Mississippi. The clincher was her retelling of her beating. Leslie McLemore was a Freedom Democratic Party delegate. And she told it in such a way until if you could have stopped the reel right then and there and said, let's take a vote up or down on these Freedom Democrats without the intervention by the hardened political prose. Fannie Lou Hamer would have won today. If the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? But President Johnson feared that if the Freedom Democrats were seated, he would lose the Southern white support that he thought he needed to defeat Republican Barry Goldwater. So Johnson asked Senator Hubert Humphrey, his choice for vice president, to negotiate with the Freedom Democrats. Bob Moses of SNCC. Johnson is the president, and Johnson says, if you want to be vice president, then you deliver this. You get this monkey off our back. Humphrey directed his young protege, Walter Mondale, to offer the Freedom Democrats a compromise. Two members of their delegation, one black and one white, would be seated as delegates at large. Members of the all-white party would be seated, but only if they promised to support Johnson for president. In addition, the National Party promised never again to seat a segregated delegation. It may not satisfy everybody, the extremes on the right or the extremes on the left. But we think it is a just compromise. Most of the delegates from the all-white regular party were Goldwater supporters. All but four of them left the convention. 
The Freedom Democrats rejected the compromise too. Unita Blackwell was one of the party's 68 delegates. The compromise was, was two seats. And Ms. Hamer said, well, we ain't going to take no two seats. All of us 68 came sitting on two seats. They came with a powerful moral case. Walter Mondale. Recounting uh, the indisputable fact that uh, blacks in Mississippi were sealed out of the Democratic Party and um, that our party finally had to do something about uh, what was uh, a moral disgrace. Mondale argues that in retrospect, the Mississippians' challenge to the Democratic Party was a historic success. Never again was was a segregated delegation ever seated at a Democratic convention. But many in the Mississippi movement were stunned at the National Party's refusal to seat the Freedom Democrats. Former SNCC staff member Frank Smith says the party's compromise proved that, in a pinch, powerful liberals would choose tokenism over principle. In the end, they just didn't have the guts to do it. Everybody agreed with us. They all knew it was wrong. They all knew it violated the Constitution. They all knew it had to be done sooner or later. They all knew all of the right things. They just couldn't do it at the time. And uh, disillusioned us a great deal. I think it uh, disillusioned, actually, the civil rights movement quite considerably. In the immediate aftermath of Freedom Summer, many young organizers felt they'd placed themselves in the path of American racism and gotten trampled. They'd endured violence and harassment. Three of their fellow workers had been murdered. They'd registered few black voters. The Democratic Party had turned aside their challenge in Atlantic City. For Dave Dennis, the Mississippi director of the Congress of Racial Equality, Freedom Summer revealed more problems than it solved. But it achieved more than anything else. I think it exposed the system, okay, from top to bottom. That there was a conspiracy to some extent, unwritten, you know. Um, there was just so far that people were going to go to make changes that weren't going to step on too many people's toes. And really what type of a rock this country was built upon. The sense that Freedom Summer had not brought tangible political change was exacerbated by frustrations inside the movement. Some felt the intense experiment in integrated activism had failed. Matt Suarez, a core staffer from Louisiana, says the northern white volunteers came with good intentions. But it was like they thought they were coming to deal with a bunch of ignorant slobs because we weren't formal in our practices, because we did things in a different way. Uh, They felt they knew better. Former SNCC staffer Bob Zellner says during the summer, conflicts over tasks like typing and copy making led to wounded feelings in the makeshift and harried civil rights offices. And these were places where young Mississippians, mostly black, had gone through a lot of pain and suffering to learn some of those skills and techniques. And suddenly, uh, someone from, you know, Bryn Mawr or Stanford or wherever, well, I can type, uh, you know, 100 words a minute. Let me do that. You know, let me run. I know how to run that machine. I can even fix that machine. You know, so there was a certain amount of shouldering aside. Personal entanglements sometimes turned into racial conflicts. White women angered black women by forming relationships with black men. 
At the same time, some of the women who volunteered for Freedom Summer were forming ideas that would lead to the founding of the modern women's movement. Their criticisms of men, black and white, alienated some African-American women, recalls Unita Blackwell. I remember Fannie Lou Hamer says, you know, I'm not going to liberate myself from Pap. You know, that was her husband. She did not want to be liberated from Pap, you know. She wanted Pap to be liberated. Some whites, including Betty Garman and Casey Hayden, struggled to understand when their black colleagues in the Mississippi movement got angry with them. If you were naive like I was, and you came from a relatively sheltered background, it was like, oh my gosh, what is going on, you know? And that said to me that the whites, myself included, didn't understand the anger of oppression. We, we had no clue what that was all about. I think that the summer project, by virtue of creating integration in a sheltered manner, allowed the tensions which were present in the society to surface. Others perhaps approached Freedom Summer with lower expectations for racial harmony and were less disappointed. Most black Mississippians had never known whites who would shake their hands, talk to them as equals, or ride as passengers in their cars. The Reverend J.J. Russell hosted white volunteers at his home in the Delta. The law of the county, they didn't want it to happen. They didn't want white students staying in the black homes. <laughs> but we did it and didn't want us to ride together. But we rode together. Otherwise, we work, work just like sisters and brothers. But after Freedom Summer, bitterness and separation won out within the Mississippi movement. SNCC, the group that led the Summer Project, had been founded as an integrated movement committed to nonviolent resistance. But within two years of Freedom Summer, SNCC had new, more militant leaders who declared the Black Power Movement and dismissed the group's white staff members. Former SNCC staffer John O'Neill says Freedom Summer helped him grasp the true relationship between blacks and whites in America. Decades later, O'Neill says, that relationship has not changed. You know, black people, as a matter of necessity, have to deal with white people in one way or the other all the time and have pretty good notion of who they are and how they function, what they do, and generally recognize it. Most of them don't understand the relationship that we have to each other and generally don't recognize the racism in themselves and generally are like bulls in china shops when it comes to trying to be in the world. But if Freedom Summer didn't achieve what some hoped it would, it did help to break open the South's closed political system and it served as a training ground for activists who went on to lead the campus free speech, anti-war, and women's movements of the 1960s and 70s. A lot of the people who took part find much to celebrate in the summer of 64. I think that every time we got someone to register to vote, to attempt to register to vote, whether they were successful or not, every time we got someone white allowed to stay in their homes, every time we got someone to stand up and say, yes, I'm going to the mass meeting, we had changed them. You don't do that and then undo it two weeks later and go back and become what you were before that act. We were not the only people affected by um, this summer project. It helped to free many white people who were there who may have had good intentions but were repressed and were fright as frightened as we were. But Mississippi transformed us more than we transformed Mississippi, much more profoundly. 
people came out of the Mississippi Summer Project and uh, looked at the questions that affected our lives ever after, questions about gender, questions about sexuality, questions about war and peace. And um, we had real knowledge of a way to function. This is the only thing that could have happened, that summer project, given who we were and what we were doing and what was available as resources. That was the only thing to do. The fact that we could do it as young as we were was an, a truly incredible historical event, an amazing historical event. And it was a great thing. It was a great thing that we did. It was a grand thing that we did. You should have been down in Mississippi in the summer of 64. Many Freedom Summer veterans never stopped working for social justice. To take just one example, Bob Moses, the leading architect of Freedom Summer, is the creator of the Algebra Project, a program that teaches math to underprivileged children. The year after Freedom Summer, John Lewis and hundreds of others marched for voting rights in Selma, Alabama, and were clubbed by riot police. That year, Congress banned the mechanisms southern states had used to disenfranchise African Americans. The Mississippi Summer Project laid the foundation, created the climate, created the environment for the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act to make it possible for hundreds and thousands and millions of blacks to become registered voters. In the end, trying to pin down the legacy of Freedom Summer is as complicated as summarizing the meaning of race in America. But the Mississippi Summer does stand as a startling expression of hope and of a willingness by young black and white Americans to throw themselves into the grinding gears of a racist culture. It's a story that's especially striking from the perspective of our more jaded times. Alabama native Bob Zellner, the son of one-time Klan members, worked for SNCC for six years. He was beaten and jailed in five states alongside black civil rights workers. He insists he did it all out of self-interest. People always said, you know, what made you go south to help the black people? And I always said, well, first of all, I didn't go south. I was already south. And I never uh, set out to help the black people. I was looking for my own redemption and my own freedom. We believe in freedom, freedom, I'm John Bewin. This is Deborah Amos. It seems Freedom Summer, all by itself, managed to foreshadow the America that would be left after the civil rights movement of the 1960s, a country that rejects the most blatant and vicious forms of white supremacy but also a country that seems not quite ready to be one country. Not with so much inequality, so much unfinished history stacked in crates around the room, waiting to be unpacked. Oh, Freedom Over Me was written and produced by John Bewin and edited by Deborah George. Associate producers Stephanie Curtis and Sasha Aslanian. Mixing by Tom Mudge. An earlier version of this program was co-produced by Kate Cavett. American Radio Works is the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. The managing editor is Stephen Smith. Executive producer Bill Buesenberg. I'm Deborah Amos. Oh,